My favorite part of the Toy Story franchise is in Toy Story 2 when Woody is broken. His arm is savagely damaged and the cleaner has to be called in, the old man with the nifty repair toolbox. And Woody goes under repair. And it is a neat scene of brokenness and restoration. And I say that because what we hope you've been reminded of during this lengthy series on family is that one, every family is broken and is in need of repair and redemption. And if you're thinking, well, not ours, well, you're in need of repair and redemption. And number two, Christ is our redeemer. I was thinking about this idea of family idealism versus family realism, and it made me think of a TV family that is not a Disney family, as has been the thematic basis for our series, but was iconically perfect nonetheless. Do you remember the Brady Bunch? Here's the story of a man named Brady. And uh, here's a Brady trivia question. When Jan wants to get her older sister's attention, what does she say? This is, this is going to be scary how well you know this. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. When Peter threw the football in the house, what sister did he accidentally hit in the face, making her nose look like a heavyweight boxer's nose right before a big date, causing a complete Brady breakdown? Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Who got a swollen ego when she was cast in the school production of Romeo and Juliet, making the other Bradys regret convincing her to take the role? Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Which sister lost her diary, the one in which she was, had confided her deep feelings for Desi Arnaz Jr. because it is accidentally given away by her sister Cindy, and so she starts a campaign to exclude her younger sister from her life? Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. What sister did a football player from a rival school use so he could steal Greg's playbook? Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. I don't know about you, but it sounds to me like the Brady's had a problem child. There's no drama in the Brady Bunch without Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Now, I gotta admit, I harbored a resentment toward the Brady Bunch for a long time for two reasons. One is because the Brady Bunch was broadcast on Friday nights at 8 o'clock on ABC, and I had sisters who wanted to watch the Brady Bunch. Well, the problem was Bonanza was on Friday nights at 8 o'clock on NBC, and I wanted to watch Little Joe and Haas solve their problems that didn't include Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Now, I know some of you may find this hard to believe, but I grew up in an era when there was only one TV in the home, three channels, no DVR. It is shocking, but true. And this caused conflict. But the other reason I carry this resentment is the Bradys were so rich and so perfect, and I knew my family wasn't rich, and something within me knew it wasn't perfect. And it appeared the Bradys achieved this perfection, and they didn't even go to church. Just at Christmas time, it seemed. And my family went to church all the time. We went Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and so here's the issue I have about this caricature of an American family, a blended family, working to near perfection, except for Marsha, 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 living the American dream. Here it is. God is hardly ever mentioned in the Brady Bunch, if at all. My question is, does that work? 
Does family without God work over the long haul? If he is not actively invited into the process of the home, does it matter? Can we all just get along fine without God? Is family so easy that it doesn't need supernatural assistance, an infusion of grace and redemption? No, we see families do that at least a while, don't we? Maybe your family. And then there's this question. Is that the goal of every family? Is, is our family goal just to make it work? And everybody ends up being respectable, productive members of society with a college degree, a nice home, a spouse, 2.5 kids, and a dog named Tiger. Is that, is that all life and family is really about? I have a hunch there's more to family than churning out productive citizens who pay their bills. I have a hunch that in the end, we really need God. I not only have a hunch, I strongly believe this, over years of experience of watching families. Remember this verse of scripture from a few weeks ago, Psalm 127, one, unless the Lord builds the house, the labors, the builders labor in vain, unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. The writer says, God knows how to build a family better than you do, better than I do. And I often use this one at weddings and I envision the picture of a triangle of marriage to communicate this. God must be at the top of your marriage as he builds that intimacy with himself. He builds an intimacy with one another. Why is that? Well, aside from the obvious fact that he's God, here's the answer to that. The idea of family was God's idea. Let me say that again. The idea of family was God's idea. He knows how it works and what it's designed for because he thought of and designed the idea of family. God thought of a family bunch from the beginning. Genesis 2.24, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's the idea of leave, cleave, and weave. Look at this verse from the New Testament, Ephesians 3, 14 and 15. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. In the original Greek language that Paul was writing within, the word for father and family are very closely related. For the family to be everything a family can be, the family must draw everything it is from the heavenly father. You see, the very idea of family, listen listen to this, the very idea of family is an extension of God's character, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, extending that community to us. And if you want to know why family goes very deep into the heart of every person listening to this, why it evokes very deep emotion in each of us here, no matter who you are or or how together you look, why does it stir longings and hopes and dreams inside every one of us that no other word does? You, you start right here, the family is God's idea. That's, that's the answer to that question. It is built within us. And it is meant to reveal the ultimate truth in the universe. God, our Abba, our Father himself. 
The family is not some arbitrary cultural artifact that may come and go. The family is not just some biological mechanism that happens to be a handy way to pass on DNA so that the gene pool can keep moving. The family is a divinely ordained idea. It was created by God to be a reflection of his character, a manifestation of his triune presence, and his kingdom in this world and a vehicle of his grace to build that kingdom. You see, God's idea of family is that it would be a means by which the kingdom comes. And now some of you are hearing this and you're going, great. Because uh, you know your idea of family was, your experience of family was not the bliss of the Brady Bunch. I'm guessing your family has had worse challenges than a swollen nose before a big date. That's because something has entered into the picture that damaged God's intended vision for this thing called family, and that is sin. Just read the Old Testament and the shocking sin-stained stories of the Adamses, the Abrahams, the Isaacses, the Jacobses, the Moseses, the Davidses, and you will feel better about your crazy family. They are not the Bradys. Some people like to talk about the golden age of the family. It usually has to do with the TV land era of, of American history. But let me tell you something. There's never been a golden age of the family because families have always been made up of little sinners who grew up to be big sinners who are in need of grace and redemption. And yet, it's through these dysfunctional, wacko families that God, the, pater, the, the patera, the father, is working to keep the dream of redemption alive, and we need him to do that. You see, no family, look at this, has ever drifted into God being built into their family, being real in their family. No family has ever woken up and said, oh, God's a part of us. We didn't realize that. No, it's always an act of intention. It's always an act of intention. So what can you do? How do you weave God's presence into the fabric of the wonderful world of your family? Well, let me close this series out by breaking it into three phases of family development and see if this helps you. Phase one is the building phase. And this is when your family is zero to 10 years of age. In the Old Testament, there's a verse in Deuteronomy 6, 6 that says, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And the idea there is not, hey, sit down and have lectures once a day. The idea is in the natural flow of your family life, weave God's reality in that. Let, let God flow naturally into your conversation, your activity. And one of the ways to do this is, for example, is that is, is art. Put up excellent art on the walls that speak of the reality of Christ in your home. Watch movies like The Chosen that communicate the life of Christ and the story of God. Read scripture stories to them, to your children before they go to bed. Talk about God when you see a rainbow or an animal they like. Teach your children to memorize scripture. Get them to Southbrook Kids every week where God is taught and modeled. It makes an incredible statement to your family to just have the regular practice of getting in the car and coming to church together. It says God is important in this family. He keeps our family together. Pray together as a family and make it fun and interesting. Parents, do you have any idea the power and impact it has on your children and succeeding generations when you pray for your family? Fathers, do you know how it affects young children to see a strong, capable man bowing his head 
and praying, asking God for wisdom and praying for provision. That marks children. Or moms, do you, do you, do you know how, how impactful it is when they see a strong, wise mom bow her head and pray and acknowledge the goodness of God? One of the things I would ask you is families of Southbridge, do you pray? Do you pray together at meals? Do you pray with your children and your family at bedtime? Are there just certain occasions where you just stop and call a timeout and take each other's hands and say a prayer? Here's the key with this. The key is demonstrating the love of God both in the things we plan and the things that come up in the interweaving of our family life. This is where we leave and we cleave and weave the reality of God into the fabric of our home. That's, that's phase one. Phase two is the breaking stage or the breaking away stage. And this is when your family is between 11 and 19 years of age. And this is the stage that is breaking because this is when faith begins to break down into components of self-analysis and children will begin to break away from you. And sometimes they'll do that in an unhealthy way. Sometimes they'll, they'll do it in a healthy manner. Rebellion is an unhealthy and destructive process of differentiation. That's the actual psychological term for this stage, differentiation. That's, that's unhealthy. But healthy kids still need to differentiate. They need to be able to find out, who am I? So this means that it's going to require great wisdom and grace. Discuss Christ's values and issues that are brought up in movies and popular culture. If our kids were teenagers today, we would discuss stranger things together. And the demon in season four is just scary. My prayer life has improved because of season four of Stranger Things. We, talk, we would talk about that with our kids. Open up the scriptures. If you can continue to read a chapter of the scriptures after dinner, before everybody has taken off, it's a miracle that if you can make that happen once or twice a week, once or twice a week, just pick up Jesus Calling by Sarah Young and just read that. You'll be amazed at how years from now they'll remember that. Talk about what you heard at church on the weekend. Talk about ministry. Go on a mission trip together. Students don't need better pizza parties. They need places like Mayfield, Kentucky to go to with a group of people to say, We're, our lives matter and we are going to help rebuild Mayfield, Kentucky. And referee is paying for that, by the way. Get involved in service ministry, maybe one in which the whole family can participate. Why? Um, if you... If you put meaning to life, it seems to have a gravitational pull of making that differentiation process a lot healthier. If you look back and you feel you didn't do the building phase correctly, which is probably very likely with many of us here, start where you are right now. But the key is consistency at this, at this stage. Their faith in God is gonna be challenged. Show them there's a connection between your faith and your life demonstrate integrity. Karl Marx's father was a Lutheran church leader who was hypocritical, and it caused his son to be utterly disillusioned by faith. Look at the impact that had on our world. You want to make sure there's a consistency. Look at this. Make them see your character, the difference Christ has made in your life. And I cannot tell you a better parental verse than this one you're about to look at. Galatians 5.22, the fruit, the byproduct the effect of the Spirit being in your life 
is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Look at that, look at that, that's attractive. Who here doesn't want that? And who here doesn't want their parents to have the fruit of the Spirit? Just take a look at joy. Look, look, look at that one joy. I remember when my daughter one time in Southbrook Kids, they asked her, what's her favorite thing? On Father's Day, what's her favorite thing that she sees her dad do? And I had never forgotten this. She said her favorite thing is to see me laugh. Show them that living for Christ is a life that they'll want, even when they don't yet believe it. But because we have Christ, we have joy that transcends this life. That's phase two. Phase three is the rebuilding phase. And this is 20 and beyond. And they are still probably deconstructing, rebuilding their faith in God. Deconstruction is the buzzword today. And they're rebuilding their relationship with you. One that has likely become strained during the differentiation breaking years. And the key here is to move into companionship. This is very difficult because they're going to make decisions that you still don't agree with, that maybe you're funding <laughs> and you see as not a wise decision, but you have to move into companionship. And this is where your relationship changes. You become a resource of God's wisdom as it is asked for. And as they get older and they move more deeply into their 20s, as it is asked for. I had a really good friend of mine, Eric Nelson, who polled his grown children and he said, how can I always have a voice with you? And one of his, his daughters-in-laws said, Eric, if you will just listen to us and not be coach Eric with us, you will always have a voice in our life. That was beautiful. Now, I don't have a lot to say about this phase, but let me say this. We've seen this with our grown kids. Pray together whenever you can. Even if your child is an atheist or an agnostic at this point, pray with them. Don't get preachy. Uh, I doubt if they'll resent it. There's an old story about the old football coach, George Allen. He was an atheist, but he always had a chaplain come in before the game and pray with the team. And someone asked him, Coach Allen, why do you do that if you don't believe in God? And Allen said, I might be wrong. I'm not taking any chances. And, and even, even a, a, a child that's moved into unbelief, they're still not sure. And you have to be careful. You don't want to be manipulative. But try to pray. Now, all of this is motivated by an acceptance of this truth. Unless the Lord builds the house, Psalm 127.1, the, the builders labor in vain. You do not want to build something substantial with something that is broken. Let me say that again. You do not want to build something substantial with just something that is broken. But a master artisan can arrange brokenness in a way that actually beauty comes out of brokenness. And this is our family. Even those of you who say we're better than other families, do you know that's actually a statement of brokenness? It's pride. It actually causes shame. So even that, even families, all of you families who have it all together and, you, and in your mind you think you're better, no, that's still brokenness. Christ can even take that. And when I wrote this, I thought about the Japanese tradition of kintsugi. It's a, it's a centuries-old Japanese art of fixing cracked pottery. And rather than hiding the cracks, the kintsugi method Technique involves rejoining the broken pieces with lacquer mixed with powdered gold, silver, and platinum. And when put back together, the whole piece of pottery looks as beautiful as ever, even while owning its broken history. The writer Barbara Bloom said, when the Japanese men broken objects, 
they aggrandize the damage by filling the cracks with gold. They believe that when something's suffered damage and has a history, it becomes more beautiful. We believe this is true about your family. The reason we did this series, The Wonderful World of Families, because we know that nobody has a fairy tale family. But Christ can redeem our broken pieces and he aggrandizes our brokenness by filling in his life and his grace. And what emerges out of our brokenness are wounded healers, people who have a bright sadness about them. We know the wounds of family, but we know the the restoration and the redemption of the Savior. And this is how it becomes more beautiful.